Welcome to another Say No KNOW.org podcast. We discuss all things drug related, including policy, crime, and research. We talk to professionals, researchers, and people with lived experience and discuss ideas on how we can make things just a little bit better. The Canadian Research Initiative of Substance Misuse has supplied funding to allow this podcast to take place. Our Say No initiative is part of the Chrism Prairies Network. Please check out all the incredible work they are doing in the field of addiction and research at chrismprairies.ca. Again, that's chrismprairies.ca. Please note that the views and opinions expressed within our podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Chrism or any of their members. The views in this podcast also do not necessarily represent the views of my employer or any organization I am associated with. And the same goes for all of our guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and head over to our Facebook page under Facebook backslash Say No Org or tweet us at Say No Org. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Say No KNOW.org podcast. Today, uh, my guest is Matt Kaminsky. Matt, thanks for joining me today. No, thanks for having me. So Matt, uh, we've kind of Matt's a few times you've you showed up at a couple of presentations and and uh, we have some mutual friends and whatnot and I understand you you kind of got into the drug scene a little bit and your drug of choice specifically was fentanyl yeah we haven't actually had a conversation yet so no no one really has we've talked about fentanyl on the drug podcast before I talked to on an episode uh, Dr. Daryl Gebian he was a doctor in Ontario who was prescribing over prescribing okay. fentanyl and prescribing to himself and he had some addictions issues. So we, we had a bit of a conversation about fentanyl there, but I'm really excited to talk to you because we haven't uh, really delved into kind of the street level fentanyl situation that's going okay. on. Well, I'm happy to be here and share my story. So how, how did, how did it get started? Tell me a bit about yourself, Matt. Well, I guess I, the thing to say, I'm a, I'm an average kid, you know, I'm not, I didn't really grow up in the hood or anything like that. I had a nice family. Um, I guess my parents got divorced at a young age, so that kind of rocks a kid when they're young. But, you know, I had a good mom. She always took care of me, gave us everything we needed. You know, I played sports all the time. I had lots of friends. I was, I guess, part of the popular crew. And then, um, you know, high school came and it was just like everything changed, you know. I guess teens develop attitudes and stuff like that, <laughs> yeah. rebellious. And so I started rebelling and I started smoking marijuana at a young age. but. Yep. It didn't feel like anything because it never feels like nobody thinks they're going to be addicted to anything. Right. In fact, I remember in elementary school being like, I'm not going to try drugs. I'm not going to do yeah. it. Everybody says that. But, you know, it develops after a while. You start doing other things. You hang around parties and stuff, and it just appears around you. And you curiosity, you try it. So, I, you know, ended up doing Coke and some Molly, some MDMA and stuff like that. Were you doing that in high school too? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And ecstasy and stuff like that. Mm. That was more in like the later years of high school, probably like grade 11 and 12. Yeah. It was mostly started smoking marijuana in grade nine and kind of tried to play it safe up until, I don't know, I guess, you know, you go through relationships, you go through hard times in life and yep. it puts you down. So, but then it, actually I didn't really get it hooked into fentanyl until after high school. Okay. And I had graduated and um, it was actually Oxycontin that was going around at the time. Was it the knockoff oxys or the real the real ones? Real ones. Okay. Yeah, the real ones. And so my friends and I, we were all doing the real oxycotton. And then before we even knew it, it was switched with fentanyl. You couldn't really even tell the difference half the time, right? From the visual aspect of it. 
So were you guys snorting it or just yeah. taking pills or? Yeah, we were snorting it. Um, they had the chewable tablets too. We would do the chewable tablets, but everybody preferred snorting it, right? So then that's when it changed into fentanyl really easily. Wow. The chewable tablets, you could obviously tell were real. Yeah. Well, actually having people started actually dying from it and then they started testing it. And that's when we found out it was actually fentanyl. Right. We didn't actually, none, none of us knew until it was actually too late. We were already hooked on it. Oh, geez. Yeah. So was it kind of like a core group of friends you guys got into this? Or yeah, what? there was like a lot of us. So, lots of my friends are actually, some of them are recovered addicts and stuff now, but lots yeah. of them I think are pretty still hooked. I don't really talk to many of them anymore. Yeah. And you know, have to distance yourself when you change your life. But right. Yeah, it was a core group of us. Um, and it spread like wildfire even to people that weren't in our core group of friends, but there were other core group of friends over there and you could, see that they were doing it too you know and there was a it was a whole drug trade between us all you were obviously selling it to when you were getting it to keep your addiction going and right so you were fueling other people's addictions too so you could just see it spread rampant right the city right that's kind of the issue right now we have with uh the meth scene in saskatoon is that it's become so cheap yeah that every user now is also a seller because that's the easiest way to you know, support your habit is just, you know, if, even if you only have 20 bucks, well, if you go buy 20 bucks and go sell 15 worth, at least you're smoking yours for free. Exactly. And you make your money back almost already, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the same thing that how you guys were doing with the fentanyl pills. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. So in high school, I mean, smoking the odd joint, you know, doesn't, doesn't, it's pretty rare that some, you know, a progression right to fentanyl would occur. So when you had, you had this group of friends and you were smoking, smoking weed, for example, did you feel like you were you were using more than your friends, or like were you, or were you just kind of casually using, or do you think there was an addiction starting to occur? Probably there was an addiction starting to occur there. Like you don't see it, but it's um you know the feeling of being high and stoned, or you know it things felt different. Like it, it's even with smoking cigarettes, lots of people like to smoke cigarettes while they drive, right, and stuff like that. So when you're when you're driving, it's kind of like you just wanted to smoke a joint or something, and or before class or something like that. It just you know, and you get, it's almost like a routine. Right. You do it every morning when you wake up and we would smoke like half ounces in a day. Oh, wow. So it was like. So this wasn't just like on the weekend socially. You know, this is your, it's interrupting your daily. Oh life. yeah. Like wake up yeah. every morning and go make some sales, smoke some weed and go to class and. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so smoking weed's one thing. I mean, as youth, you could, you could probably downplay the, the, the severity of, you know, smoking, smoking weed. When did the chemical drugs kind of start to to leak into your guys' circle? The chemical drugs were probably always a little bit there. Like there was always cocaine or, and around, but I personally didn't start trying it until probably like grade 11. Part of it was probably I was rebelling a little bit. My mom was kind of hard on me, like not hard, but she was uh, didn't want to let me go out and party and stuff like that, right? So then I would rebel and go do that kind of stuff. and Go a little more extreme. Yeah, and um, I guess... The chemical drugs just started with, with the partying because there was lots of drinking going on and then we would do lots of cocaine. And then after that, it just developed into curiosity, like wanting to know what that felt like or what that felt like. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So where was the line? Like, when was the first oxy pill introduced then, like to that circle? Oh, it would have probably been so I could, in probably like 2010, 2011. Okay. Um, and there was also like 
we were doing hydromorphone and stuff like that. Oh, so you're already using down too? Yeah, because friends had prescriptions and stuff. And that was more like a casual thing. We would probably do it once every, you know, two months or something like that. Like it wasn't a thing we'd do every day right. or even every week or anything like that. But then, you know, you, you get addicted to the feeling, pain going away, stuff like that. If you got a sore back or so, it's easy to get hooked on the down. Like, yeah. Super easy. How were you using the uh, hydros? Sniffing them. Snorting them yeah. too? Yeah. So were they the beads or were they the... Yeah, they, we did the beads and um, yeah, it was mostly beads. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So you're already starting to use some down and then someone happened to have a prescription for Oxy or how did you get that first actual prescription Oxy pill? I think someone had a prescription for it. I'm pretty sure. I can't remember how we got it, if it was someone's parents or, and so, or someone ha- had a prescription and sold them to us. But we just we just ended up getting them, and we had our pretty constant like supply of them. Oh, really? Yeah. And then when the fentanyl started coming, and then like when we really started getting into it, we had a really steady supply. Okay, so the oxycotton prescription started. Now I don't know if you if you're aware of how the knockoffs came to the market, but the patent on oxycotton's ran out in I think 2012. Yeah. And so then there was a slight overlap of the knockoffs did start to enter the market, I think just kind of right around that time. So there was there was an overlap where there was real pills available and yeah. knockoffs available. So you're probably right in around that time, yeah. eh? Yeah, that was exactly it because I can remember it happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you know where your supply of the knockoffs were coming from? Were you guys ordering them online? or No, or we, we were getting... BC? There was people bringing them into the city that we knew and I'm pretty sure they were coming from BC coming oh, yeah. that way, yeah. Okay. And then what was the feeling like when, was there any, did you notice any difference when you're snorting those pills compared to um, the oxys, the real ones? I guess you probably you felt more high fi- doing the fake ones because um, I guess fentanyl is a lot stronger than the oxy is too, mm-hmm. right? And oh, yeah. um, so it, it was, I guess you can't really tell in the moment and it's hard to think about now because it's been so long since I've actually done them or felt that feeling, but it's... um. Yeah, I guess it it would have to say the fentanyl was stronger. You it it hits you that much faster, and all you could all you remember is just nodding out and sweating, being super itchy. I like I found myself so itchy really when I started doing fentanyl. Yeah. Huh. So when you say nodding out, like you're ch- chasing that nod to just to the kind of that point of passing out sort of thing. Yeah, and like, then. So what's that like? It's it is it's one of the like it's it felt in the moment it felt like one of the best things to chase because you you just felt like if you were in a couch you just felt like you molded into the couch like you were just one like one with the couch almost because <laughs> yeah. you would just sit there but um, then you notice that you start waking up and you could spend hours just sitting in the same spot and then you'd wake up and it felt like five minutes. Really? Just pass by, yeah. Okay. And then you you kind of like look around and realize where you are again and actually how long it's been. And it's kind of like, uh, I haven't thought about it in so long, but it's like, uh, it was it, that was the feeling that everybody chased was the nod. Because especially when you started detoxing and not getting your pills, right. you were up 24-7. There was like anxiety and you couldn't sleep whatsoever. And so then... As soon as you got that next fix, you were like 
I get to go to sleep. Like I can sleep now. Right. So it was almost like you were chasing the nod. Right. Wow. So when it came to the withdrawal, because you hear you hear a lot about uh, you hear a lot about getting dopes, people getting dope sick, and uh, and I know it's a lot worse with with opiates and fentanyl in particular. Can you kind of walk me through like what's your experience with getting dope sick and and kind of you know almost almost taking the pills? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know from other people I've talked to that it's almost it's almost like the high isn't even what they're going after anymore. It's just to prevent themselves from getting so sick when they're not using. Did you experience that? Completely. Yep. Cause you would do one pill and then you would almost feel normal again. Like you could just function in every day because dope sickness was actually the worst feeling in the world. And even nowadays when I get sick, like even when I get the fluids, it, it can take you back mentally to that state when you're all, your body aches all over. And it's not to, it's not to the extent of what it was, but it just takes you there. Cause like the pain is so unbearable and it hurts all over, but yet you have this anxiety that you can't sit still and you, you, you want to run around, you want to run laps around the field, but your body aches way too much to even move. And it's, you, you almost want to scratch yourself out of your own skin. The vomiting is and diarrhea, you can't even control your own bowels or anything like that. Like it's wow. completely the worst feeling in the world. So how how long of using do you have to kind of be on for you to start experiencing some of that? Oh, fentanyl. Like uh, I guess it could be different for every drug. But for I had a cousin that um, he went with us on a trip, and it was just a night overnight trip, and we came back and. The whole week the next weekend, he was dope sick because he would because and he had never done it before. Okay, and he in his mind he didn't even know he was dope sick. He just thought he got sick, right? Because or with the flu or something like that. But he was actually dope sick when you think about it now because we had done pills that whole way up and the whole way back. Yeah, and so when when he didn't get them anymore, you just like, get like the flu. Yeah, that's interesting. Hey, it's yeah. almost <laughs> it's quite the. Uh, it's it's quite the catalyst to keep somebody addicted to something that, you know, now now it's not even the great feeling that the product gives you. It's just simply yeah. it makes you feel like crap if you if you're not using if you're not using it. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes actually it goes that way with every with every drug. That's what you know, the addiction is even um with marijuana too. I know people that need to need to wake up in the morning and have smoke a joint just to right. feel normal in their head that they can go do things right you know and it, it not saying they wouldn't be able to if they didn't smoke that joint but it's they just would rather they would feel better i know some people they need to smoke before they drive because they get car sick oh yeah and stuff like that and i mean it's illegal to smoke and drive so it, right and dangerous it's dangerous <laughs> so that's like you're risking your life every time you do that right yeah so do you live a completely drug-free lifestyle now like i know a lot of people use marijuana as to help them kind of cope or no i to... i do smoke marijuana oh yeah but i don't do any other drug i'm actually i'm on the methadone program oh are you yeah so i've been on the methadone program for almost four years now oh wow yeah so. and so do you take drinks yeah yeah i take uh carries home with me so they and so how often do you do you dose uh, every night every night yeah i take a drink every night before bed and then do you like is a is the idea that you're just going to then kind of wean wean off to nothing, or are you going to stay on that forever? Or? No, I'm going to wean off to nothing. I I used to watch so many people get on the or the methadone program, and in fact, I didn't believe in it at first when I was first hooked on. I 
it's obviously switching one thing for another thing, but it's uh, prescribed by a doctor. It's monitored. There is positives to it big time. And now I'm a huge believer in it, but it also comes with the attitude of wanting to get clean. And I watch so many people get on the methadone program and then still use drugs and still, still do just as many pills as they were doing. Right. And in my mind, I, it wasn't clicking for me why they, someone would do that because you're, you're getting on to one thing to get off of it. Like that's yeah. why you're doing it. So as soon as I got on the methadone program, I just would, I'm not touching another pill because I'm not going to do both. Right. I'm, I'm doing this to better my life, save money. Like you still save, you're spending money on pills if you're doing that. Right. So I, I never looked back after I got on the methadone. Wow. Good for you. So let's, let's talk a little bit about recovery and then we'll go all the way back and talk about more, more of the stuff from the, from the drug scene that you were in. So you kind of progressed in your, in your drug use. You're now using some pretty severe opiates, uh, fentanyl in particular. Yep. And it's now time you've, you've made this conscious decision. I suppose that you're done. What were the steps that you took or what did you do at, from that moment where you're like, okay, I'm done with this. Or what, what was it that even, that even was that trigger that was like, okay, no, I'm, I'm getting out of the scene. Well, there was actually a couple of times that I decided to get out of the scene and like, you know, cause you go and you relapse and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. But when I actually decided to get clean, it had just been so many times I had put such a strain on all my family. I was losing everyone around me. I felt pretty alone. Like I, there was no one I could call to do anything from, you know, I right. would steal from my mom. My mom didn't want anything to do with me. Right. My brothers didn't want anything to do with me. So you kind of just hit that wall, I guess. Right. Yeah. You just decide that, Either, either you're going to start living your life or you might as well just die, really, because you're just wasting it. And that's just sad to say because, like, you know, but it's just a, the choice you're making. It's a, it's a subconscious choice that you might not even know you're making, but you're killing yourself slowly anyway. Right. So, so uh, I know people, people that are struggling with addictions issues, they're some of the hardest people to love. So I'm sure that's what your family was going through. Right, because uh, it's it's hard not to be all consumed by that one person who's kind of living that life of chaos. You obviously saw that, so you make that decision, and then and then what what then what did you do? I actually called the methadone program myself because my mom, even though she had wanted nothing to do with me, helped me through my addiction completely. Right, um, but she was not. A, she hated the methadone program. She did not believe in it at all. So I actually called by myself. Yeah. Wait on the list for two months as I was hiding my addiction that I had relapsed again. And as soon as why it, did you have to wait two months? There's a waiting list oh. you know, to see the doctors and stuff like that. You, and um, there's actually so many people trying to get on the methadone program. How sad is that? It is actually sad because that's a it's almost the same as with detox units, right? And getting right. into a treatment center because you detox and then you have to wait. Wait, treatment, treatment center and that's your prime time of relapsing and you know you're going to do the amount of drugs you used to do you're going to overdose right of course so it's it's almost the same because it just puts you in an awkward position to struggle well yeah and, and it's you, it's almost gives you that false hope like hey i've made this conscious effort i'm done now i'm seeking out the help and the help's not there yeah, exactly right and it's like oh my god like yeah. how if we can't if we can't help a person in the moment when they've because that moment may never come again. Exactly. And if we can't help them in that exact moment where they've decided, no, I, I need the help now, like I'm ready, 
if we can't do that as a community, then what's the point? Yeah. If we can't help those who are ready for it, then how are we going to help those who aren't? Exactly. Like it's it's a broken cycle for it sure. Is, it's terrible because, uh, you know, when someone reaches out for help and you get they get that false hope, They even if they survive and they keep going, they feel that nobody else is there for them, right? Right. It's, and so then it's even more of a, in it, and an addict feels alone, like yeah. big time, even if they're not going to go out there and say they could be surrounded by so many people and they're still in their own head because they struggle with their own their own problems that nobody knows about right and if if those programs that are there to help us aren't there aren't answering or ne- aren't there for them they're they're never going to go try again yeah no doubt mm-hmm. yeah that's that's something that we struggle with uh i struggle with all the time and and you know i'm going to parents families at work and stuff and uh and i've heard these stories time and time again where my kid tried to get help and it wasn't there. And unfortunately, even a lot of our overdoses right across this country, the, those individuals who end up dying from their addiction have reached out for help before. And, and there was that break between detox and treatment. And that, that needs to completely disappear. And, yeah. and hopefully the more, the more people that are aware of it, they start you know, phoning their MLAs and, yeah. and telling them like, look, we need this, we need this gap closed. Yeah. It, it's seems fairly simple you know, to just divert some funding into, into this one specific area. Yeah. You know, let's focus on helping those who are ready to quit themselves. And then, well, then we can kind of start dealing with the rest once we get that under control. Exactly. It, like it all takes is a mistake to become addicted to something. Like it's not, there aren't people that go out there and maliciously do drugs to get and, and stay addicted and want to be addicted. Right. So one of those people that is addicted to something and, or made that mistake if they don't get like they could be someone that could further the world better when they're clean, right? They could, right. that that mind could um, add so much to the world. But if they don't get the like, if that person didn't get the help they need, how would we know that? Yeah, exactly. So let's go back and talk a, a bit about when you're right in the mix of this this fentanyl scene. What was your average day like when you were really struggling and at your at your worst with your addiction? a day felt like it was like you would maybe sleep for three hours if you were lucky, if you weren't getting your fix. But if I was getting my fix, I would spend hours sleeping during the day, wasting the day away. It was either you were high or dope sick. You didn't eat food. You didn't eat good food. You didn't take care of yourself. I remember eating five cent candies all the time and slurpees, sugar, (laughs) gross stuff that is bad for you. And you're already putting poison into your body. So it's, but, um, you know, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you think about is if you don't have your pills, how you're going to get some or when you're going to be the net, how long it's going to be until you're dope sick. Then you, you know, you, if you have your pills, you go throughout your day, you know, you go to work, you try and function. So were you working while you were, yeah. so you were, you were living a fairly tried to tried to. Yeah. I was also selling drugs a lot too. So it was, oh, yeah. you know, when I wasn't working, that's how I was making my income. Right. Yeah. And so then you go, you try and go about your day. But if you, if you don't have any pills, nothing else matters until you get them. You could put everything off. I, your grandma could be having a few. I remember my grandpa actually passed away when I was super addicted into it. And I was, they lived three hours out of town. And I remember I didn't have any pills. And we were going there for the week for the funeral and everything. Yeah. And, I was up the whole week. Oh, man. 
And my mom is a huge family, so I had aunts, uncles everywhere, and they would all be sleeping and everything, and I would be up, and I had to try and hide my dope sickness. And I'd be sweating and, uh, you know, having to attend the funeral. And it's in, this is February, so it's freezing outside. Yeah. And so it was actually, like, one of the worst feelings in the world that I was, you know, at my grandfather's funeral. And I, all I was thinking about was pills because I... I felt sick. Yeah, so you're even missing out on some, yeah, you know, important family events. And exactly. The focus was on was on yourself or on on your addiction rather than it's very selfish. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, selfish, but kind of almost out of out of your control at that point. It's True. not like you could make yeah. a conscious decision to, you know, engage with your family when you're that sick. Yeah. Yeah, it was hard to even yeah, just sit around the table because and talk with them because you're inside your own head at that point. Mm-hmm. All, all you can think about is what's going on inside your head. And then someone asks you what's wrong because you're almost it's almost like you're zoned out. Right. And you're just staring at the table and then they ask you what's wrong and you kind of snap back into it. and you're, oh, Nothing. I'm just tired or whatever and mm-hmm. try and pass it off. But those who truly know you know exactly what's going on. Right. So was it a secret to most of your family at that point? No, at that at that point, it, lots of my family knew about my struggles. I had I had actually spent time at my grandparents' house. Uh, I had left the city and like twice, I think, and like spent time out there to try and get away from the pills and stuff. Oh yeah, before that, and then yeah. So what is it that then pulls you back? Honestly, it, you know, it's your own. It's a little bit, I guess, wanting to feel the feeling, but. It also lies in like the people you surround yourself with. If the people you surround yourself with, even if they want you to do good in life, but they're still doing pills around you and stuff like they could genuinely care about you, but they're also caring about themselves too. And so then they're doing pills around you and then it's just a trigger for you. And um, so then you end up relapsing too. And it it's not like they want you to relapse, but it just happens that way. Right. It's no one wants way. to use alone. Yeah, ex- exactly. Right. Especially always, if you're feeling lonely, I guess. So. Yeah. You always want someone to bond with. It's easy to find someone to, you know, share your addiction with. Um, one of the worst things, too, that, that in the, the, the height of the addiction was um, you would always, people would you steal from each other. Yeah. And so you'd steal from your friends. Your friends would steal from you. But you would also know, and you would know that they stole from you or they would know that you stole from them. And, right. But you also needed each other to get to your pills because you would put money together or you would you know get i need them because they had the hookup or something like that right and it almost it almost actually made you feel like you didn't have any dignity because you you knew someone was treating you this really badly and stealing from you but you didn't have the heart to call them out on it because you you knew that you would need them in the future right you can't even stand up for yourself really and Exactly. Or Jeez. if you do say, say something about it, you end up having to let it go. Right. Anyway, in, in the everyday world, somebody would just write someone off like that, right? And just not be friends with them anymore. For, yeah. But you realize you need them. You need them and you're doing it to them as well kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So when you did you ever get caught selling drugs? I was arrested once. Once? For well, trafficking or just yeah. for? I got arrested once for trafficking um, cocaine and marijuana. Oh, yeah. But... I ended up beating my charges nine months later. I spent nine months on curfew and conditions. Yeah. I spent a week in the correctional before I got bail. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you never you never were convicted no, of No, I was never trafficking. convicted, no. And so that's what you were selling mostly at that time was 
Yeah. It, well, that was bef- that was actually before the addiction. Oh, was it? fentanyl. Yeah, I was I was arrested for selling that before, and then um, it was after that we got hooked into oxy and stuff. How old were you back when you got when you were selling coke and? Uh, I would have been nineteen. About nineteen. Eighteen, nineteen. Okay. And just selling it at bars and stuff or to friends or uh, bars everywhere. We were we were selling it pretty pretty heavily. Yeah. So you making lots of cash or yeah. you were? Yeah. And at the time were you feeding an addiction as well? Um I guess in a sense, because we would do drugs, you know, at parties and you know, Coke and Molly stuff like that, but it, it didn't feel like an addiction because we always had it. We could afford it. Right. It wasn't affecting our you know, our lives, everything. We we could go to work. We would probably even do drugs at work, but and become normal. So, yeah. I, in a sense, it was an addiction, but it didn't feel the strain on life. Right. That makes everybody think notice that they're addicted. Right. So then, yeah, I always like to talk to, especially when I talk to young people about drugs, because a lot of them are like, "Oh, the drugs harm us," and and uh, it's like, well, we need to stop focusing on the substance, because to me, the substance is irrelevant. It's about the behavior. So it's it's. Uh, I mean, if you can smoke a joint on the weekend with your buddies and the and you get all these benefits from it you know socially or whatever and and there's very few negative consequences then that's fine yeah but as soon as you, those negative consequences start outweighing the benefits that you're getting from using mm-hmm. and you're ignoring it that seems to be where you know the, the an addiction to me seems to kind of yeah. take fold from from the experience that I've had talking yeah. with people it's almost like they ignore those negative. Yeah. That, like your life is now a complete shit. You know, you're surrounded by people that are stealing from you. You're stealing from them every time you wake up. It's like, well, the fun side of this drug and the positives are almost invisible. Yeah. Compared to the negative shit life you're living. But by that time, it's it doesn't even feel like a choice anymore because mm-hmm. you're addicted to it. Your body needs it. It's craving it. You would literally right. feel like you were going to die if you did not have it. Right. So by that point, it's like, you're, you're it's not a choice it, it, in your own head and some people i've seen some and it, it almost seems like a little bit of ignorance to it when they're then when people say someone is that addicted and someone says it is a choice yeah that, that, and like i, I it, it's only ignorance in the sense because yeah. people have feelings like right. people feel things and so they're feeling that way so it feels like they have no choice but in if it was black and white yeah they, they are choosing to do it that's a, but it's not black and white yeah it's not black and white and it's not it's not a choice as in as in you know i'm choosing to put my shoes on in the morning i'm choosing to reach over here and bump a line that draw to bump that line or mm-hmm. or whatever it is is uh whatever the substance is is like a thousand times yeah. pulling you in that direction it feels like a need like you yeah. need to have it yeah. yeah and in fact when we're talking about detox and withdrawals i mean you can die from an opiate withdrawal yeah so, yeah, I mean, can. you know, your body is actually craving because you're physically addicted to the substance. Yeah, exactly. So did you, when you're selling, when you're selling your Coke and Day, like what kind, and, and Molly, uh, what was, how much cash were you making? Oh, we were, we would probably fly through almost, well, the addiction in of, it, of itself, me and my buddy, we're, we would go through two grand every two days each. It just impels to do and we were and then at that like, point sor- sorry you were using two grams yeah, worth of pills yeah each in two days <laughs> yeah so how much was a pill back then 40 to 40 bucks 40 to 60 bucks Depending. yeah 
depending on who you got it from. And those were the knockoffs? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And like, and we were at that point living like comfortably, like we were, we were making our money back. We were, you know, we'd be able to pick up more after and, you know, there would be points where we would be partying and, you know, drugs would be everywhere and you could write them off and still come back. Okay. After. Right. But so we were moving lots of money, like lots of stuff around, but how much were you getting the pills for? Oh, probably like 20, 25 bucks per pill. Yeah. Also, so even so, you even need a pretty decent capital investment to get started. Oh yeah, yeah. Unless you have, unless you found somebody that would give it to you, they would front it. Yeah, would front it to you. Yeah. Did you have someone fronting at the early ages? Yeah. At the early days. Yeah. And so, how many pills were you fronted at a time? At points, there'd be a couple hundred, but then sometimes, you know, you if you go to a new dealer, depending on how long you were connected with them, you know, the more they would give you if you were come back with their money again and again, right? Yeah. Somebody's not going to trust you with lots of quality if they don't know you very well, right? Or quantity, sorry. Right. Yeah. So when you, when you, was there any repercussions um, when you decided to stop selling or how did Uh, that, how'd that go over? You know what? Because you obviously screw up, right? So you, you screw up your money. You, you, you obviously owe people money now. I've had to pay off countless drug debts. You know, I've had to borrow money for countless from family and stuff to pay off drug debts. So, um, like since being clean and stopped selling, or are you talking about while you were while I was? And like, I've, you know what? I bet you if there's somebody probably around there that I still owe money to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's even if you wanted to pay it back to go pay it back, you'd have to enter a scene you didn't want to enter. Right. So, so what goes wrong? What goes wrong when, like, I see this all the time. And I know that there are successful drug traffickers at the higher levels that, you know, are just making like serious bank, but it seems like at the kind of that mid range level, street level, kind of where you're selling, even though you have a lot of cash and you're living a comfortable life, there's always, you're always in debt. Like what is it that goes wrong that. I guess you, well, you either do your own supply um, oh, the cart! You break the cardinal rule. Yeah, you break the supply. cardinal rule. Yeah, <laughs> especially because like lots of people end up. That's how they end up. Um, keep they keep selling is because they're just selling to get the to feed their own addiction, right? Right. But um, that's how it starts: is you break the cardinal rule, or um, you could go out partying, or go to the mall, or something like that, and all of a sudden spend too much money, or you know, um, like dip into your reload money. Yeah, kind dip of thing. into your reload money, or you get robbed. Right. Simple as that, right? And it, even if you get robbed, you still owe that money to whoever you owed it to. Did that ever happen to you? No, I've never actually been robbed, but it, I've seen it happen to people. Yeah. And like it doesn't turn out nice. No. No. So when you're when you're in debt to your to your supplier, um you said you borrowed money from family yeah. to pay it back. Yeah. What made you feel like you had to pay that back? Sometimes you're almost even as scared for your own well-being, right? They, those people don't care about you. They just care about your money, their money. So like, um, I've had people, you know, show up at my house and it's not just my house. My mom lives there. My brothers live there. So it's almost like the well-being of your family too. And like number also number one rule is you can never go to the cops, right? Right. So it's pretty much you either have to deal with it or something bad is going to happen. And I mean, if there's also the sense of, um, 
wanting to pay it back too because you got yourself into the situation right like you you knew what you when you fronted it off them you knew that you owed them the money right so so there's actually that moral sort of pull yeah. even really yeah. even in that well in the ass like it, i don't know i i was like that anyway because yeah. I, I don't know it's just the person i am i you know Honest I accept responsibility <laughs> except responsibility for my actions kind of thing yeah yeah so did you ever did you did you ever feel that you know you that your family or you would become a victim of something if you didn't pay back the money you owe like were you oh probably yeah like there probably things would have happened for sure like when these people showed up at your house are these like buddies or are these no well no. one was a so-called buddy at the time but he yeah. showed them where I live, so. Oh boy, yeah, and that was to fuel his own addiction, right? Because uh, right. you, you offer an addict something, they'll tell you anything, right? So when these guys knock on your door, how did that go down? They stormed the basement. My mom and my mom was upstairs in the bathtub. I think they actually stormed into your house. Like we opened the door because yeah. we looked like a buddy. Yeah, and then yeah. and then yeah, they stormed into the basement. Yeah, and then there was just me and a buddy down there, and they. We're not happy. They slapped him around a little bit. Then my mom started making a fuss upstairs, right? And started being like, um, you know, what the fuck? I mean, what's going on up yeah, there? No, you can she, swear on oh, this good. podcast. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So they were, um, she was wondering what, what was going on downstairs, stuff like that. So then that's when they were like, okay, we're leaving. Yeah. Kind of thing. And my mom's not like um, an average lady kind of thing. She, She's kind of a boss. Oh, yeah? Yeah, she's a scary lady. <laughs> that's good. So... Scary mom that chased off some well, yeah, drug dealers she, out of your house. Yeah. Well, they just know she could, you know, she knows lots of people. So she, you know, they knew they would be in trouble if they would have stayed around any longer. Oh, Even yeah. too much trouble. Like they would have came back for us or anything later. Or they could come behind us anywhere later, but they would have found themselves in too much to deal with, you know. Oh, yeah. Too much heat on their own self. Oh, gotcha. Wow. It's a crazy, it's a crazy life. Yeah. Um. So, have you ever tried uh, Suboxone or heard of it? I've heard of it. I've I know people that have been on it, but I've never tried it myself. Never tried it as an alternative to methadone. Suboxone essentially it's oral pill you take, and then it just blocks your opiate receptors, and you can't overdose on it. Okay. So it's got some. It's definitely got some uh, advantages over the methadone program, but. The, di- the key difference is because it can't make you high and you can't get high when you're on it, you can't just dip your toe in the water with sobriety mm. like uh, like you can with methadone. Like you said, you had friends that were taking methadone and then still using. Yeah, You can't you can't do that with Suboxone because it's like completely cuts off your opiate yeah. receptors. You can't feel anything. You can't feel you anything. It. Right. So, uh, so it, it might help with the physical addiction, but as far as like actually treating the psychological side, uh, you know, it's just a medication. It doesn't doesn't provide any sort of therapy or anything like that. Yeah. Was there anything that uh, that happened in your life that you feel might have contributed to why you know these drugs took a hold of you the way they did? Um, like any sort of trauma or neglect. It seems to be a running theme with a lot of people I've talked to. Yeah, you know what? I think there's there's always that, um, and I, there's always that. Uh... I I I never I never like um tell, complaining about anything that goes on that had had caused trauma in my life because yeah. I always feel there's somebody out there that has it totally. worse than you oh, that, totally. right so um but I mean my dad as a kid he was gone all the time he was traveling for work 
And then, um, you know, at a young age, he, he cheated on my mom. And he, he was, before I was 14, he was abusive verbally. Mm-hmm. And he would punch holes in walls and stuff like that. And, and um, but when I turned 14, that's when he took it out on me. Oh, boy. And so then the, it, it actually only happened once. And it, um, but it was a severe beating, like tossed me over walls, cracked ribs, like busted my face up. Oh, and I, I think I had called my brother a name or oh, something geez. like that. So it, it went and my mom was out in Vegas or somewhere. So then my aunt had to take us in or, and I had friends over when it happened. And like, it, and the, they, the friend, all he said to me was uh, the door was closed and all I could hear was you just screaming. Really? Yeah. And so it, it was like, and my dad was a big dude. Yeah. So he was like 6'3", 260. So. Jeez, man. Yeah. And, but then, um, you know, I, through high school, I was, you know, rebellious. And uh, my mom, she gave us everything we ever, you know, anything she could give. She tried so hard for us, but, mm-hmm. um, and she would try to be there emotionally for us, but she was a single mother. My mm-hmm. parents ended up getting divorced and I have two younger brothers. So, she had to work a lot and right. she didn't go. She put herself through university at 30. So and got her Good master's her. and stuff like that. So she, she was spending lots of time working or in school all the time. And so at a young age, it kind of put a lot of responsibility on me at home. Yeah. And, um, I was obviously making some mistakes too and oh, of course, yeah. stuff like that. And, you know, I ended up getting kicked out of the house. I remember for, you know, for a while I lived in the McNabb park. Oh yeah, by the airport yeah. before they tore it down, and it was just me and a buddy living in there. We were probably sixteen, you know. I dropped out of school, so it, you know all those traumas. And then you see, like, as you you know you're selling drugs and stuff like that. You you do things. You hurt people. You you know. And that lots of people don't think that that weighs on a person. You know, they mm-hmm. just see that person as a bad person. But like sometimes in those senses. It, the drug game is like you sometimes you don't want to do that stuff but you, you you have to almost for to get your money or to do something like you you feel you have to and then maybe at that age you probably don't think of that there's an alternative way that you could do it and so it's a stupid, right but you know you do things and it, it it weighs on you it adds guilt to your soul yeah stuff like that so then you have to live with those things you battle with those things in your mind and even then that you know that's when you start doing drugs even more. Right. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of plays that compounding effect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that's it's crazy, man, because um I mean, I've spent most of my career investigating organized crime, drug type offenses and, and I've kind of worked every scale of the drug trade as I mean as as much as you can, as much yeah. as the the government's willing to fund from a federal drug section and organized crime focus and now i'm in you know a guns and gangs unit where we're where we're dealing predominantly with kind of the lowest level of the the, the street trade and it's interesting because there's way more violence and chaos at the lowest level of the trade because everybody's so desperate and everyone's almost like hungry themselves and they're fighting for food they're fighting for drugs they're fighting for yeah you know claim on the street they're even a street corner stuff like street corners yeah, yeah like it's 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 more violent than I was even expecting coming from, I mean, I've, I've been patrolling for whatever. I've, I mean, I've been a cop for 13 years and, uh, 
you know, I've patrolled the core neighborhoods. I was in the drug section, but that was, you know, more of the higher level stuff. Yeah. But even coming here, the amount of violence that we hear about, even that doesn't get reported, this one I'm talking to people in the community or informants or whatever, and they're yeah. like telling me some of this stuff. It's just like people getting thrown in trunks of car and taken out of town and beaten and like this, this, this extreme violence. And yeah. what frustrates me the most, um, probably because I have, uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur as well. So like when I look at it with, with an entrepreneurship lens, it pisses me off because I see all of the blood, sweat, and tears and violence and chaos to the community that I live in caused down here to the profit of somebody way up there that could, could give a fuck. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. And, and like the, nobody could even know who that person is no, that they're profiting from. No, and, and in fact, law enforcement necessarily doesn't because when you're operating at that high level of the game, it's it's fronted com- it's false companies it's yeah. you know you don't even get your hands dirty at that point you no. just collect no and we look at like the fentanyl trade these pi- like the pills that you were selling i mean these things are coming off the ships from asia yeah. in mass quantity we know that yeah but yet i've yet to i've yet to see a single massive multi billions of pills seized at the border yeah you know it's not happening yeah which shows that it's getting funneled through through legitimate "Quote unquote legitimate companies and sources as people well. People being paid off. People being paid off. Yeah, and and shit like that happening. Yeah, I saw in the Facebook article and that was uh, going around the other day. It was from the National Post, and I just commented finally because I've been saying this for years. Everyone's bitching about the Vancouver housing market mm-hmm. and how these million dollar houses are sitting there empty and the value of houses are through the roof and it's not they're not valued properly." people don't understand that's the fentanyl trade that's what caused that because there's mass amounts of cash hundreds Mm -hmm. of billions of dollars generated of canadian dollars physical money that can't leave the country because it's harder to get cash out of a country than it is to get drugs in a country people don't realize that yeah and so what do you have to do you have to start buying real estate yeah so all of a sudden you start seeing all these multi-million dollar houses bought with nobody living in them yeah because they have to do something with the cash that and makes then it, a lot of sense. Yeah. And then, it, and then it impacts the entire economy. Yeah. So then you have just a nice young family in Vancouver who can't afford a house now. And it's a direct result of the illicit drug trade. So there's, wow. yeah, there, I mean, there's stuff that happens on a level, on an economic level like that, that we're not even talking about. Yeah. And so I'm a big believer in regulating drugs so that this tax revenue can actually start doing yeah. the opposite to making our economy yeah. function more. I think I said that to someone the other day too. I said, if like um, you gave, as soon as it's illegal, same as the prohibition, that's when the criminals, or organized crime start making their profit off of it because right. it's illegal and then you, nobody can get their hands on it, but they want it. Right? right. It's a supply and demand. And so you can charge more for it. You can make your money off of it. But as soon as we regulate it, then that's when the government gets its, you know, right. government can start making the money off it. And the people of Canada can start using that revenue for better things for good and yeah. and it's not just a small amount of revenue it's the largest economy period yeah it's bigger than any legal economy we have it's bigger than the oil and gas industry for sure so so i mean we're not talking about just a few bucks here we're yeah. talking about all of the bucks yeah they could do so much with that money oh that, totally yeah so with with that in mind in your younger years let's pretend that we had a regulated market so what i mean by that is most people, when we talk about you know legalizing drugs, they think like, oh, at the 7-Eleven, I'm going to be able to walk down there and pick up 
fentanyl pill from 7-Eleven. That's not what a regulated market means. Each drug would be regulated differently. So marijuana, for example, we might put those parameters on. So let's say that, you know, in high school, I mean, we're going to see what that looks like, I guess, you know, in a few months, yeah. weed's going to be legal. Um, and then cocaine, let's say cocaine might be available in a similar setting as, uh, let's say cocaine is avail- available in a similar setting as marijuana, but maybe just a few tighter regulations. Yeah. Let's say ecstasy is the same thing. Then when we start talking about opiates, let's, let's pretend that anyone can go to their doctor. And if you're struggling with an addiction, you can get a legitimate prescription for an opiate. How do you think that would have affected your life if, if the kind of societal compounds, I don't know, it's just anecdotal and high, like, well, what, what do you, how do you think your life would have been different? You could, it probably would have been different in the fact that the access is cut off, right? You can't get it unless you find someone that, you know, is, gets it and then gets it, gives it to you or something like that. Right. So you probably don't, you don't have as much access to it. Your connections are cut off. So it's almost in a sense, you can't do something you can't get your hands on. Isn't that funny? Yeah. That if, as soon as we make something legal instead of illegal, access gets cut off. Yeah. It's exactly right. And, and I'm glad you picked up on it because no member of the general public, unless you've lived a lifestyle similar to yourself or you've taken the time to do some research, yeah. would ever come to that conclusion and you did it right away. You know, I yeah. I think about it all the time, actually. Yeah. It would, it would, it's crazy. Yeah. It is. Um, it, it, there is in countries in Europe, there's some countries that have, you know, um, regulated their drugs and they have a super low drug addiction rate. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think, um, I wonder if it's Denmark. Well, there's a few, there's quite a few. So Portugal was the first. Yeah. Um, Norway's got one that they're rolling out here. They might've already done it. I haven't, I haven't looked up recently, but I know it passed in their parliament. So they're going to be, they're going to be doing a more regulated system. Um, Perfect. Yeah, so so there are quite a few countries that are going that, and I think I think that's the general way that things are going to yeah. naturally progress. Um, in a very early episode, I spoke to um, Professor Bill Bogart, and he's an author of a book and a professor called Off the Street. And he was we had a long conversation. That's his expertise is what would happen in a regulated market, and and we talked about regulating drugs, and it was really fascinating because that was those were the conclusions that that we can draw from um yeah like you you actually regulate a market and it becomes less accessible to children yeah there's less likelihood of people becoming addicted yeah and the the biggest point for me is the chaos that's caused so even if god forbid you still go down that same path the chaos is completely different no drug dealers are coming and yeah coming into your violence factor is the violence factor is gone yeah you're not needing to sell to support your habit, which means because as soon as you start selling to support your habit and I start selling to support my habit and this guy over here starts selling to support his habit, we've now just created or spearheaded, you know, 10, 50, 100 more people mm-hmm. that are spreading, that are having to, that are using now too. Yeah. So then, and then they one start, addiction you know, spreads yeah. and then there's spreads and there's spreads and it's like a virus kind of yeah. thing. So... Yeah. And um, the only thing I think about when it it comes to regulating and like to regulating drugs now, too, is that we've actually we have to make our recovery system better. Right. First, because if we all of a sudden regulate these drugs and cut the access off, there's going to be lots of people out there that are addicted right now that aren't going to be having access. 
And so then they that's where they they need their recovery system. Right. And be in order just to act right away, you know, they can go to detox and get into a treatment center right away because in that moment afterwards, like if it's regulated and cut off and they can't get access, like that's when they become depressed with despair or, you know, they do start doing things, you know, there's people breaking into pharmacies, yeah, stuff like that. Right. They try because they can't get access, right? So that's where the harm reduction sort of stuff comes into play, I suppose, eh? Yeah. So when someone is living that life or struggling with an addiction, we have processes in place to give them access. Yeah. And- yeah, exactly. Like it, it just got to be done right, right. Right. Cool. Um, I don't think I have any really any further questions. Is there anything else you want to hit on? Not really. I'm. You know, I think we covered a lot of stuff. Um, you know, the main thing about it, the main thing with addiction is like I and I can say a lot of people that I've talked to with addiction that. Ha- they would not survive it without the people around them that care for them and love them. There's a support system that comes with it. And not saying that you can't survive it without the support system, right. but that support system really does play a factor. And I think sometimes we forget in the, when someone's an addict, we forget that that support system is having strain put on it too. Like your family, mm-hmm. it, it, it struggles with their life too. They may not be physically addicted to it and making them sick, but they're also watching someone they love put themselves down the drain, right? Right. And it's hard for them to want to sit around and watch that. And sometimes you do have to cut it off, you know, cut access off. That's what my mom did to me. She, you know, cut my access completely off, didn't want me around at the house, couldn't do any, you know, see any of my brothers, anything like that. Right. So then it actually puts you in the position to have to make a choice. I read something the other day that said, if, uh, if an addict's happy with you and you're probably enabling them and if they're <laughs> upset with you, you're probably trying to save their life. Wow. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So it, I guess it just sometimes that support system's also got to remember that they got to struggle through it too. Right. They got to push through it because that person might not survive without you. Yeah. Yeah. Is, Addiction, a healthcare issue, or a criminal justice issue, or something different altogether? You know what? That's a good question. It's, I believe it starts as a mental health issue. Hmm. It starts, but can develop into a criminal issue because you start doing things for your addiction. But it, it definitely just needs to be researched and studied because it could be something else altogether. It's, a, it starts with mental health, though. I think. Right. Before anything, because, you know, you struggle with things in your own head, your own mind. People are depressed. They have anxiety from the get go that they use drugs to subside those feelings. And um, then you start doing things for your addiction. So I think it could be it, it lies in both. Right. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the best way of of learning and I mean I learn I've learned a lot just sitting and talking to you yeah. and, I'm, and I'm sure our listeners have too so thanks a lot for sharing your story it takes a lot of courage thank you uh, yeah it, um, you know what it's good just to talk about it um, just to even get it off your own chest sometimes it's good to just talk to somebody about it open up and share your knowledge because if we, if we all share our own knowledge our own stories about it then we're gonna definitely find better ways to combat it Right. Perfect. That's why our program's called Say No, K-N-O-W. Share that knowledge around. Exactly. All right. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you.